Welcome. Welcome back to Text. We took a break. We started in January. We got to the end of January. We're here now. And I got to tell you, I've been enjoying this series and thinking about it and working through it. And thanks to all of you, all of you who have reached out to let me know that you've learned something or that you were enjoying uh, putting pieces together that you knew, but you didn't put them together before. So uh, whether you've been connecting with this, the history side, like I kind of like the history side, or you've just been demystifying your understanding of the Bible and then somehow its arrival into your hands, glad to have you along on this road trip in earnest pursuit of Christ, where we are being drawn together into one. And together we experience the love and the freedom from Jesus. And the Bible is a key way for us to gain insight into Jesus and into his story. And part of the reason that we have been focusing on this, this topic, pulling it out and just talking about this, we've said this basically every week so far in this series, knowing or, or hearing Bible stories, that's what we've had. If you grew up in church, you grew up with Bible stories. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you grew up and you've probably heard some Bible stories. Some of you grew up in church and you heard Bible stories and then as you got older, you walked away from the Bible. Because the stories that you had heard, they just, they just didn't seem to add up to you anymore. They didn't seem to connect with real life. They didn't seem to connect with science. They didn't seem to connect with what you had learned in university. And, and the problem for many of us, even though we know lots of Bible stories, most people don't know the story of the Bible. And understanding how we got the Bible is really almost as important as knowing what's in the Bible. Because knowing the story of the Bible, it's the backstory for the stories in the Bible. And the backstory actually helps shed a lot of light on the stories in the Bible. The big challenge for us, and this is, uh, this is what we've been talking about over and over for these last episodes together, is that the way that you received your Bible, the way that you got your Bible, is just not the way that the world got the Bible. By the time I got my Bible, um, maybe the time you got your Bible as a child, or maybe you got your Bible as an adult, or you know, maybe you don't even have your own Bible yet. But when you do get it, it will come all chaptered and versed, and it's going to be mapped, and it's going to be wrapped. The way that we receive ours, our individual Bible, is just not the way that the world got the Bible. And the story Really, the journey of how this book came to be is almost as important as what's inside of it. So, looking back quickly, you remember episode two, um, where this is where we, uh, we found out that the story of the Bible doesn't actually begin in Genesis. The story begins on Easter. The, the story of the Bible, the reason that we have the Bible is because Jesus' followers discovered that the tomb was empty. And they, they, they had assumed initially that someone had stolen the body because nobody, not one, assumed a resurrection. But later that same day, the women came and then his closest male followers saw Jesus. And suddenly there were Jesus sightings all over, all around Jerusalem, the very city in which he had been arrested and held and crucified. And once Jesus rose from the dead and, and people uh, saw him instantly, the story of Jesus became very, very important. But it wasn't until the resurrection, and that's why we've been saying through this series that um, if there had been no resurrection, there would be no Bible. They were 
also be no Christianity because the story of Jesus would not have been worth telling. We would have just been talking about another first century wannabe Messiah, another rabbi who made some extraordinary claims, did a couple of magic tricks, and then was executed by Rome like so many others had been in the past. But when it was discovered that Jesus had risen from the dead, suddenly there was interest in the life of Jesus. And Luke, a first century doctor, as we saw in episode two, Luke said that there were many people that set out to give a documented account of the life of Jesus. Now that there's a reason to document it. And the four documents that we have that document the life of Jesus, that made it through antiquity, maybe you know them, say them with me if you can. We have today, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In episode two, we talked about these four documents. We discovered that before long, the Gentiles, people like us, non-Jewish people outside the area of Judea and outside of Galilee, they began to embrace the message of Jesus. And this was the transition in the story. When Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, became enamored with Jesus, they became enamored with the sacred texts that told of his coming, that foretold, that prophesied him. We, we would call it, a really, I guess they call it the Hebrew Bible, but we have since gone on to call it the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. But back in that day, they called it the Law and the Prophets. Well, the early church got really, really interested in this collection, the Law and the Prophets. Not because they were interested in Judaism, but because they were interested in Jesus and the backstory to his story. And so they eventually embraced the law and the prophets as sacred scripture, but they didn't embrace it as Jewish scripture. The first century, the second century, and especially the third century church eventually embraced the law and the prophets as Christian scripture. And by the beginning of the second century, the Hebrew Bible, the Law and the Prophets, was being used regularly in Christian worship. Then they eventually they gave it a new name, and they called it the Old Covenant, or as it came down to us through the Latin term, the Old Testament. But there's still no Bible. There's a Hebrew text, the Law and the Prophets, um, called the Old Testament, considered now a Christian text by the church which of course is really, really offensive to all of the Jewish communities around the world. And th there had been these documents that, that hadn't been titled yet, um, but they were the accounts of Jesus' life that eventually we know them now as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then in addition to those documents, there was this famous church planter who had begun writing letters to churches and the churches and the people in those churches that he himself had planted. And it's to him that we're going to turn our attention now. We know him as the Apostle Paul, but the Apostle Paul stepped onto the pages of history as Saul of Tarsus. And the reason he's got two names, it's a little confusing for us, is uh, Saul was his given Hebrew name because he's a good Jewish boy. But he was also a Roman citizen and he had a Roman name and his Roman name was Paul. So when he transitioned from the role of Pharisee, the good Jewish boy, and he became the church planter to the Gentile world, he began using his Roman name, Paul, because they would understand it better. The Apostle Paul is so famous. If you've read any of the New Testament, you've, you've probably read something that he's written. I doubt that there's anybody listening or watching today that, that could say, I've, I've never heard something that the Apostle Paul wrote. Because it's not an exaggeration. There's, there's no, one, uh, no, no one in academic circles argues with this. 
It's not an exaggeration to say that the letters of the Apostle Paul have shaped Western civilization. Of all the apostles of Jesus, Paul did more than any of them. You could even argue that Paul did more than all of them combined. So yeah, he's like the colossal apostle, Pharisee, author, preacher, church planter, Mediterranean rim wanderer. But if the apostle Paul was here, he'd say, nah, 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 nah. That's not how I view myself. You may view me on this side of history as the colossal apostle. And and I've changed and I've shaped Western civilization. But, But when he talks about himself, he uses very different terms. And here's what he said in a a letter to to, uh, Christians in the city of Corinth. He's already visited this group, and so he's writing them a letter as follow-up. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. He said, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. And we'd say, well, why not, Paul? You wrote so much. We know what you wrote. You created so much theology. You made it clear. Why don't you deserve to be recognized? All right. I'll tell you why. Because when I first stepped onto the pages of history, I was not a follower, I was not a cheerleader, I was not a fan, I was not an apostle of Jesus. Quite the opposite, because I persecuted the church of God. The amazing thing about this is the apostle Paul is that that he is the first, uh, he's first known as the person who, who had his mindset on putting the church out of business. They called it a Nazarene sect because Jesus was from Nazareth. And they called it the way because these people claimed that they had some sort of special way. The first century, these first century Jesus followers had the audacity to try and hijack the Jewish scripture. So Paul's, uh, Saul's upset. To say, to say it meant something that it, everyone knows it didn't mean. So Saul the Pharisee knew the Old Testament. He knew the law and the prophets inside out, backwards and forwards. And he decides, I gotta, I gotta do this. So single-handedly, I'm gonna put the church out of business. They're robbing from Jewish tradition. They they are robbing from the value of the temple in Jerusalem. So he goes to Jerusalem and he meets with the high priest. He gathers up the chief priests and he gets them, you know, help me out here. And they basically deputize him to allow him to go anywhere in Judea and Galilee. Basically anywhere he wanted to, to arrest Jewish people who had embraced Christianity. And he said that he was responsible for many losing their lives, and for others that were tortured, pressured to the point of blaspheming the name of Jesus. For his entire life, the Apostle Paul carried the weight of his guilt, his shame, being the one who had persecuted the church. Then in this strange twist of events that only God knows why and how this happened, only your Heavenly Father knows, he decides to recruit Saul of Tarsus, to become the person that would take the message of Jesus to basically the entire known Gentile world and the Roman Empire. He was the one. And God chose him, and we don't know why. But I'll tell you this. Regardless of what you have done, regardless of who you have been, regardless of what you have done to other people, there is room in the kingdom for you. Because regardless of your story, I have a feeling if if you were to hold it up beside the Apostle Paul, your sin and your guilt and your shame would pale in significance to what Paul did in the name of God. 
The Apostle Paul plays an extraordinary role in the story of the Bible. There's three things that I just want to point out today um, that shows that he's a primary character in this story of the Bible. So I want to talk about those. Paul is important in the story of the Bible for three reasons. First of all, the Apostle Paul wrote a lot of letters to these churches that he had planted on the Mediterranean basin, and 13 of those letters have survived antiquity. Some of them went to churches, some of them went to individuals, and then he wrote one letter, a long letter, a really, a really long letter, famous letter that he wrote to the Christians living in Rome. It's called the Book of Romans, and of all of them, it is the most book-like. But he hadn't visited Rome when he wrote that. His letters were circulated and copied and circulated and copied, and they were considered so valuable that the church meticulously copied his letters. And eventually, they were considered scripture. But the important thing for you to understand is this, because we're talking about the story of the Bible. When the Apostle Paul was writing these letters, he was not writing the Bible. No one had this in mind, right? No one would ever dream that there would be a document that housed the Hebrew scriptures and then these first century writings of Jesus' followers. Nobody had this in mind. So when the Apostle Paul was writing these letters, he was just writing letters to friends and to Christians living in Rome. And then he wrote a couple letters to his buddy Timothy and to Titus and to Philemon, but he wasn't writing the Bible. Second reason, he's so important to the story, is he explains the relationship between different parts of it. If you've ever gotten confused about how the Old Testament and the New Testament work together, the Apostle Paul is your guy. Uh, He explains how Christians should view and use the Old Testament. And he should know because he was an expert in it, right? He was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was an expert in the Hebrew Scripture. He was a super Pharisee. And I don't mean he was a super Pharisee. I mean he was super Pharisee. He knew the thing inside and out. It was uh, that amazingness of that is what puts it into his story. And one day, one afternoon, he pivots from being the law-abiding Pharisee who was out to put the church out of business. And he goes into a Jesus follower in one afternoon. So the Apostle Paul had remarkable clarity about the relationship between the Jewish scripture and what would eventually be called the New Testament. The Apostle Paul knew knew the Hebrew Scriptures. Again, backwards and forwards, inside out, could quote the whole thing, and it would eventually be his knowledge that would be used to write a bunch of the New Testament. So his clarity around the relationship between these two sets of documents, absolutely amazing. So much so that I think the Apostle Paul If he had been there on the day that you received your first Bible and he was kind of, you know, let me explain a little bit to you, uh, he'd give us two bits of instruction. I think he would have looked at you as an adult or as a child or however old you were when you received your first Bible, and I think he would have told us, first of all, read the Old Testament. Read it for inspiration, for motivation, but not application. And we can say that because of something that he wrote in the letter Um, to the Christians living in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, verse 11, and he says the same things in other places as well. God's people, here's the the story, God's people struggled and God came through. You read it for motivation, read it uh, to to remind yourself of God's character, that God is faithful. When When God's people cry out, he responds to them. The stories of the Old Testament are the backstory that lead to Jesus. They're the prophecies that point to Jesus. They promise 
Jesus. So remember it. But remember this, the entire Jewish Bible is organized around a covenant or a contract between God and the ancient people Israel, of which Paul was one. He was from one of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Benjamin. This is basically a contract. And the stories that emanate from the contract and the prophecies that uh, the prophets prophesied within the context of a contract between God and an ancient people. But with the coming of Jesus, there is a brand new contract. There is a brand new covenant. And you as Gentile, modern Christians, you are part of the brand new covenant. It is a better covenant with better promises. Second piece of advice Paul told us. Take your application cues from Jesus' new covenant command. So when it comes to application, you get inspiration, motivation from the Old Testament. You learn about the character of God, the promises that lead us to where we are. Stories are fascinating. It's incredibly important. Points us in the direction of Jesus. But when it comes to knowing how to live your life, how to manage your money, how to be in a marriage, what you do with your relationships, the Apostle Paul clearly and repeatedly teaches application cues that come directly from Jesus' new covenant command. And what was Jesus' new covenant command? At the end, at the end of his ministry, we, he's about to be crucified. He gathers together with his apostles in the upper room in their last Passover meal together, and he told them a new command I'm giving you. And they thought, hold on a second, wait a second, only God can give commands. And then they probably thought to himself, yeah, but only God can heal the blind. Only God can make the lame walk. Only God can raise the dead. So you, we're kind of getting used to this stuff right now. Okay, what's the new command? It's, it's not a command to add to other commands. This is the command. This is the preeminent command. This is the North star command. Don't take this command, put it in a bucket with all of the other commands and then stir it up and then spill it out and then shake it up. Try to figure out how to live your life based on that. This was the ultimate ethic. This was the guiding light. This was the, the, the way forward for all Christian behavior. All Christian behavior weighed through this one thing. Here's that new command. As I have loved you, you are to love one another. It's bigger than just that. By that unique kind of love that I'm asking you, the entire world will know that you are my follower. Don't love as you've been loved. Don't even love others as you want them to love you. That's the golden rule. We're moving beyond that. We're kicking it up a notch. We're hitting the platinum rule. I want you to treat people that you meet. I want you to treat people in your family. I want you to treat people at school, at work, and at play. I want you to treat every single person that you're ever, I to eye with, ever face to face with. I want you to treat them in light of the way that your heavenly Father treated you through me. And then the next day, Jesus would put on a demonstration of love that would take their breath away because it did take his breath away. And Paul points to Jesus and says, that's your guiding light when it comes to your behavior. His letters are filled with applications of Jesus' new covenant commands. And you should really, uh, you should know this. When you read Paul's letters, every time he says something like, do this or don't do that, he's not giving you new commands. He is simply giving you applications of what it means to live in light of the fact that God 
through Christ has done so much for you. Let me give you a couple of examples. Here's what he says in a letter to Christians in uh, the region of Philippi. Philippians 2, 5. In your relationships, so how are you going to get along with each other? What should you do? In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. How do you sort your relationships out? It's not easy. But it is simple. All you have to do is have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Seven, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So he never powered up, walked into a restaurant and said, I want that table. (laughs) Do you know who I am? I'm Jesus. Move him out of the way. He goes on in this passage, and Paul says, if you want to know how to be a good husband or a good wife, a good mother, a good father, a good son, a good daughter, a good employer, a good employee, if you want to know how to be good in relationships, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's all you need to do. You don't need 692 laws. You don't even need 10 commandments. You just set that as your guiding light, and you will know what to do. And it's terrifyingly clear. Another letter in Ephesians. Ephesians 5, 21. Submit to one another. And you go, huh, no. Why would I want to do that? Right? Why would I want to submit to somebody who's not even worth submitting to? Well, what's the point? You're not to submit out of reverence for them. You're not to submit out of reverence for yourself. You're to submit out of reverence for Christ. Changes the way you think about it. Just as Christ came and got up under your burden, just as Christ did for you for what you could not do for yourself, you are to do the same for every single person that you meet or that you have the opportunity. You submit to one another. And then from that verse, that verse first, he goes on to talk about husbands and wives. What does that look like in marriage? What does that look like with children? What does that look like for people who work? In his letter to the Christians, again in Ephesus, Ephesians 4, 32, he says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Well, why would I do that? She was a jerk. (laughs) She's not worth forgiving. I'm just going to leave her in my my rearview mirror. Let me just walk away from her. Do you know what he did to me? Do you know what he refused to do for me? Paul, tell us. Wait, wait, wait. You're missing the point. We're beyond that, right? This is Jesus' new covenant command. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. There it is again. You are to do unto others as God in Christ has done unto you. And then in his first letter to the Christians living in Corinth, here, (laughs) by the way, he says to them, you know when Christ died for you, remember that, right? Do you know that he bought you? You know he basically paid your sin debt and in paying your sin debt, he bought you out of sin? So consequently, and this will throw a loop into your life, you don't even belong to you. 1 Corinthians 6, starting at 19. You are not your own. 20, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Your bodies 
don't belong to you. Your body belongs to your heavenly Father. He bought you. He purchased you. And the reason you should honor God with your body, with what you do with your body, with where you take your body, with how you allow your body to behave, where you take your cue is not in a list of commandments. You take your cue from how to use your body and how your body impacts other bodies from what God and Christ has done for you. So he says, your, your body belongs to me. Now, now your body, your behavior should manifest the fact that you belong to me. Honor me with your body. Honor God with your body. And as you go, and by the way, honor all the other bodies with your body. Because they may belong to God as well. And they may belong to God in the future. We go on and on. All kinds of these. Apostle Paul is so clear. Old Testament points towards Jesus. It's got inspirational stories, teaches us about the character of God. But when it comes to your behavior, you take your behavioral cues from what God, through Christ, has done for you. Now imagine if we could just get that part right. Imagine what would happen in your marriage if both of you did that. Both of you. It can't be just a one-way thing. It has to be a two-way thing. Marriage can just be an ongoing submission competition. That's what marriage is. It's a mutual submission. And why do we mutually submit? Because the person you're married to is worth submitting to? Or, or, or you're worth submitting to? No, no, no. Because as Christians, we take our behavioral cues from what Jesus did for us. It is the one commandment. As I have loved you, you are to love one another. And the next day, Jesus would lay down his life for the men in that room and for you. The fact that Jesus would say, it is this kind of demonstration of love that will mark you. This is to be your brand. This is how people will know that you are my follower. Not what day of the week you worship, not how you do communion, not what does your baptism look like, not your system of theology, not what translation of the Bible you use. People will know that you're my follower because you have created the habit. You've embraced the idea that you are to treat people the way that God in Christ has treated you. That's what Paul would tell us, I think, if he was here to give us our first Bible. Wouldn't that have been different than when you received yours? But there's a third reason that Paul is so important to the story of the Bible. He wrote some of it. He explains the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. This third part is a little bit more academic, um, but you're above average people, right? So you're, you're going to be able to follow this. And this might honestly be the most important part of this whole episode. This part, I think, also is the fun part. It is the cool part. And if you walked away from faith because of something in or uh, in the Bible, or something about the Bible, I want you to especially pay attention to what I'm going to explain here. Third thing, the Apostle Paul authenticates the most important event recorded in the book, the Bible. The Apostle Paul authenticates in a way that no one else does the most important event in the Bible. The most important event in the Bible is the reason that we have the Bible. It's the resurrection. 
If there was no resurrection of Jesus, there would be no Bible. There would be no Christianity. Now, here's why Paul's so important to that line of thinking. Perhaps you, when you were in university, or maybe even in high school, maybe you've heard someone just say this. You saw it on YouTube, maybe. They've made a case about the authorship of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that they're all disputed. Um, and that they dispute the dates when those Gospels were actually written. The storyline goes something like this, that Matthew didn't write Matthew. We don't really know who Mark is exactly. Luke probably wrote Luke, but Luke wrote Luke way, way, way after the events took place. We don't know who wrote John. That these Gospels were actually written by the Christian community many, 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 many years after all of the eyewitnesses of some supposed resurrection had died. And then the myth of the resurrection had grown up, and eventually over time, they tell each other this, they write it down, and then eventually it becomes a stake for the Christian community to live around. That's what you might have heard. That's what you might have seen. That's what you might have read. It's a well-known argument. It's been around for a long time. But you need to know that there are so many problems with that way of thinking. Not to mention, before we even get to the problems, not to mention, why in the world would someone in the first century abandon their religion to embrace, to embrace a Jewish sect? Lose your job, be ostracized from your family for the rest of your life, be forced to worship not a new God, not one of the gods that you grew up with, but to worship the Jewish God when the Jewish people themselves were against the sect that you joined. You know, it's really hard to make a case that a group of people did this. But for right now, leave all that aside. The problem with the argument is not what we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The problem is an argue, with the argument is something that the Apostle Paul says. That the Christian community that supposedly developed all of these myths about Jesus way, way later, that whole argument ignores 1 Corinthians, and I don't want you to ignore 1 Corinthians. Paul's letter to Corinthian believers is indisputable evidence that Jesus' resurrection was accepted as fact immediately, not eventually. This one letter that we call 1 Corinthians is indisputable evidence that the Christian community in Jerusalem immediately accepted the idea of Jesus' resurrection. Immediately. Not many, 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 many years later. To make this case, I need to show you a timeline to which you say, Woohoo! I love timelines. Timelines are fantastic. It's a little bit of history. And we love history, right? <laughs> I do, of course. For any of you who have lost confidence in the Bible or lost confidence in faith because of something in or about the Bible, this is so important. Nobody disputes that the Apostle Paul was a historical character. Nobody disputes that he wrote the document that we call 1 Corinthians. Nobody disputes the fact that he wrote that in about the year 55 to a church that he had planted about three years ago in the year 52 after visiting Jesus', Jesus apostles in Jerusalem in 49 and in 40, which was only three years after his conversion in 37. And some very secular scholars, one in particular who's pretty famous, who's an atheist, argues that the Apostle Paul probably became a Jesus follower in the year 
35, which is only one, two, maybe three years after Jesus was actually crucified. Here's the reason that this is so important. And I bet many of you are already, um, you can see immediately why this is important. If the Christian community created and fabricated the life and message of Jesus, and they fabricated the story of the resurrection way off in the future, then how in the world did the Apostle Paul know about it so close to the time of the resurrection? In his letter to Christians living in Corinth, he says there are currently hundreds, hundreds of people in the city of Jerusalem that saw Jesus die and then saw him alive afterwards. So again, belief in the resurrection was immediate, not eventual. Here's the actual words in the actual letter that he sent to actual Christians actually living in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you three years ago when I was with you physically in 52. Verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you. I didn't make this up. Somebody told me, all right? I'm passing it on to you, and I'm passing it on to you in the year 55, but in reality, I probably already passed it on to you in the year 52 when I was actually there with you. This is what he passed on. As of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Nobody disputes the fact that Christ died. Nobody disputes the fact that he was crucified. But very early on, the Christian community had embraced the idea that Christ's death was meaningful for individuals, that Christ was the final sacrifice for sin, not just a guy who died. This is not an idea that the church created many, many, many years later. The Apostle Paul says, when I was with you, I was already preaching this to you. And the reason I was able to preach this to you is because I was in Jerusalem. This, this is what people in Jerusalem, close to the action, actually believe. And I'm simply passing on to you what the Christian community in Jerusalem already believed. That he died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Verse 4, that he was buried because that's what you do when someone dies. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Five, and that he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is the apostle Peter. Paul, just wait a second. Wait, Paul, you're off on your travels. Hold on. Paul, how, how do you know that Jesus appeared to Peter, right? Paul, how do you know that? Because I was just in Jerusalem, and I talked to him, and he told me, and, and then appeared to the 12. Come on, Paul, how do you know that he appeared to the 12? How do you know that? I, I just told you. I was, I was in Jerusalem. I've been to Jerusalem twice. They told me this. Verse 6, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters, all at the same time, most of whom are still living. So, I just got to pause for a second here, take a step out. The people who saw Jesus rise from the dead, there are hundreds of them. And not a hundred years later, and not a hundred miles away, during the period of time when it all happened, in the city where it's actually happened, and they're still alive. So go on, go fact check me. Grab yourself a boat ticket, take a trip, go to Jerusalem, talk to them. I'd be happy to introduce you to some of these people. That's why the church in Jerusalem is just blowing up. It's exploding. Thousands of people in this area embrace Christianity. And then here's the part 
that we can just skim over. So I got to pause for a second again. It's a major shift in understanding. But when it's words and text, you just sort of read them. But here's some killer lifestyle application. This, this is not so much about this message about the story of the Bible, but it is, it's not good to just pass over these words without pausing for a second. At the same time, most of the people who, were, who had seen Jesus were still living, right? Though some had fallen asleep. From the very beginning, Christianity, Christians described death as sleep. And why did these people use this odd way of referring to death? Because when you go to sleep, you eventually what? You wake up. These were men and women who'd lost their fear of death. Why did they lose their fear of death? Because they saw their rabbi die. And then they had breakfast with him on the beach. And when you have breakfast with, on the beach with your dead friend rabbi, you lose your fear of death. Especially when that rabbi had taught you for three years all about eternal life. So the Apostle Paul, writing very early, says, everybody in Jerusalem knows something happened. And there are hundreds of believers who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. And their family members and their friends are so convinced that thousands of people have just embraced the message of Christianity. But Paul's not done. Then after Cephas, and after the twelve, and after the five hundred, verse seven, then he appeared to James. And this James is the James that is the brother of Jesus. Why is that important? Why does he highlight this one guy? Because as we've talked about before, James did not believe that Jesus was who Jesus claimed to be. Of course he didn't. Come on, it's his brother. How do you convince your brother that you're the son of God? It's utterly impossible until your brother watches you crucified. And then your brother meets you on the other side. And James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because he didn't have anything else to do? No. Just because he wanted to cash in on all the fame and persecution? No. Because he knew eventually that he would be martyred for belief in his brother? No. James became a follower of his brother. And when he dies, he believes that his brother is his Lord. Why? Because of something he read? Because something someone told him? No. Because James saw his brother alive from the dead. And Peter... And Paul the Apostle and and James, they all meet. And and James told the Apostle Paul this story. (laughs) And now it gets even better than that. Even more convincing than that. In his letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul actually quotes a creed that already existed. Now, if you didn't grow up with creedal Christianity, a creed is basically a carefully worded statement. Carefully crafted. That's used to ensure... um, accurate, uh, that information is accurately transmitted from generation to generation. And in this time, most people could not read, and even if they could, they had nothing to read. There was no access to information. So consequently, the early Christian community, the Jewish community, they did the same thing. They would craft these careful statements to make sure that every generation would be able to go on and continue to speak using the same words at the same time 
agreeing and believing together. And by the time that this creed existed, by the time Paul is writing this letter, this creed already existed. It had already been around. The resurrection of Jesus was key because the Christian church in Jerusalem embraced it immediately, not eventually. Just about every scholar agrees that the Apostle Paul didn't create this. He didn't write this himself. He was actually quoting this. And even in English, it has a little bit of a rhythm to it. It goes, Christ died for our sin and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. Christ died for our sin and was buried. He rose again and was seen. Christ died for our sin and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. And very early, the Christian community in Jerusalem had already embraced this as an absolute truth, a defining truth. The resurrection was so widely known that they had already written a song or a poem or a creed. So the Apostle Paul is extremely important for all kinds of reasons, but here in the story of the Bible. So to begin with, he wrote some of it. Then he explains the relationship between parts of it. And then he authenticates the most important event recorded in it, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, while the Gospels were being written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and while the Apostle Paul was writing, other writers were writing as well. James, the brother of Jesus, actually wrote an epistle. And an epistle is just a fancy word for a letter. He wrote a letter. You can write an epistle yourself. Um, and this letter survived antiquity, and it's been added into those New Testament documents. The Apostle Peter dictated at least two letters, probably more, but two of them have survived. And sometimes people would argue it back and say, well, it can't be Peter because I don't want to talk ill about the dead, but Peter was an ignorant, illiterate fisherman. There's no way he could have written in the developed Greek that we find in his letter. And you know what? They're probably exactly right. The book of Acts tells us that when he was arrested, he was recognized as someone who was illiterate. That's what shocked the high priest and all the people that had gathered to try and figure out, what do we do with Peter? He's so ignorant. But he's so confident. He spoke with such clarity. He spoke with courage because he'd been with Jesus. So how did we get first and second Peter? He dictated it to someone who could write Greek. It doesn't have to be a big mystery. The Apostle John, in addition to the gospel, he also wrote a number of letters that have survived, creatively titled first, second, third John. Other documents written during the same time, they were collected and they were protected and they were considered valuable, not because any of the people were writing the Bible. They didn't get a special offer to write the Bible. They were considered valuable because of who was writing and what they wrote. They were collected and they were protected. And then something fabulous happened. In the fourth century, Constantine lifted the ban on just about all religions, including Christianity, and then for the first time in history. In the fourth century, scholars could come out of the shadows and to begin to work openly on all these incredible documents. The, the empire responsible for crucifying Jesus funded the collection and the copying of these documents. And somewhere toward the, 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 uh, the end of the, of the late fourth century, a copy of the Jewish scriptures and a copy of the Christian texts was eventually put together and called Tebiblia, or the Bible. 
And when these two were bound together, it was an extraordinary large book. It was a highly expensive book, and it was probably the only one that existed for a long time. And that book would eventually shape Western civilization, shape Western culture, but more personally, that book would shape my life, and maybe yours as well. And that's why we read it regularly. That's why we memorize it daily. Here's what I want you to remember from, from where we are in this, so far in this series. The Bible, as fabulous as it is, did not create Christianity. The Bible did not create Christianity. Christianity or the Christian faith is the result of an event that created a movement that produced texts that were collected, protected, and bound into a book. Christianity is the result of an event, the resurrection, that created a movement, the church, that produced texts like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the letters of Paul and Peter and others. They were collected through the years and protected through the years, and they were considered so valuable. And then eventually, they were bound together into a book, and that book is what we now call the Bible. If there had been no resurrection, there would be no Bible because the story of Jesus would not have been worth telling. And the reason that this story is worth telling is because it's a story for every generation. It's a story for you. It's a story that's personal. It's personal in the, probably the best way to think about it is the way that the first century church described that story in brief. Christ died for our sin and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. So the story of the Bible, and this is so important, the story of the Bible reminds us that the most important question is not, do you have peace or are you at peace with everything in the Bible? Do you like everything in there? The story of the Bible reminds us that the most important question is this, are you at peace with the God who sent his son into the world to die and to pay for your sins? so that you could have what Jesus promised, eternal life, and a relationship with your Father in heaven. Because that's where the story of the Bible intersects with your story. And that is the story of the Bible. Kind Father, thank you for being at work in our world. And sometimes when we come across Bible stuff, we feel like it's Bible and it's not of this world. And so when we realize that it intersects with things that are our world, we're kind of amazed sometimes. This all rose out of the world that we live in. You intersected with our lives repeatedly throughout history. Thank you for that. Thank you for your kindness, your foresight, your grace to know that we would need help and then to be willing to provide the help and the way that help could be given. Thank you for putting that in place. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. God, I pray for my friends that are watching and listening right now that while we talk about the story of why the Bible is important, that it really comes down again to the end of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to me? What difference does the story of Jesus make to me? 
So Holy Spirit, I would welcome you to move right now and speak to my friends that are wrestling with this question. What difference does this make? God, I pray for the power of belief. Not in stuff, but in you. That as we reach out and say, I don't know exactly where I stand in this world, I'm not sure we can have confidence that you are the Son of God and that you have opened up a way for us to be in right relationship with you. We all know what wrong relationship feels like because we're in them all the time. And the thought of a right relationship with you, the most holy being in the entire universe, seems incomprehensible. And so if there's someone watching or listening today that is at the place where they want to say, yeah, yeah, I want to trust you, Jesus. I, I don't have all the answers, but, I, but I've heard at least here that I, could, I can belong before I believe, and as I believe, I, could, I can grow in my belief. I don't have to understand it all to start that process, and that we move to being bold. If there's someone who would like to take that step today, Jesus, I, just, I, I want you to prompt them. And um, for, for those who are in, 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 the, in the chat feed, there, there's a place that you can, that you can say that you, would, that you would like to accept Jesus today. We would like to help you with that. Just follow me in this, this simple prayer that starts a process of getting to know Jesus better. Ah, oh, God, I confess that I do things wrong. I know that Jesus has died for my sin. And, and I want to accept Him as my Savior. I want to claim safety behind Him. I don't know what that all means right now, but I'm going to be in pursuit of Him to find that out. Cover over what I have done. Clean the dirt from me. Make me clean, righteous, and holy. And then Holy Spirit, come and dwell my life and guide me forward from this point on. It is no small thing to come before the King of Heaven to understand where we stand before Him, to see ourselves as we really are, and then be able to embrace in that fact that, that we have brought delight to God. Who's not in it to condemn us. He's there to set us free. To give us hope. And a future. Thank you for meeting with us today. Go with us today. And every day we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.